Hey, welcome to What's on Your Mind. What can we learn from Sanjoy Bose? Who? Sanjoy Bose? Who the hell is that? You can learn a lot. For me, he's the best cold caller in the world. Cold calling? Yes, that's calling to somebody you don't know in order to help him or her with your product or service to make his life or her life better. No, not to push something or to pitch something. No, 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 no. And Sanjoy has trained uh, the teams that I worked for a couple of years ago, also the company that I worked for. He worked with them and for me is, is the best cold caller in the world. And he's sharing his five rules, which he learned throughout the, throughout the years with us. It's one hour full on golden nuggets, sales, 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 but not in the Wolf of Wall Street kind of sales. So stay tuned and enjoy Sanjoy. Bye-bye. Welcome to What's on Your Mind with Peter Snowart. Every week, a guest talks about his or her story, and that story can inspire you to change your own. Here's Peter. Now, Sanjoy, I mean, people don't know you. I hope they do, but most of them, they will not know you. But for me, you are the best cold caller in the world. The best. <laughs> I mean, uh, also at Drop Solid, where I work... Uh, the CEO and the COO, where you have trained them years ago, they still apply your principles. And for me, one of one of the, the, the questions that I still use is, what will be the impact on your business in the coming six to 12 months of yeah, doing this or doing that? And it's such a open question that i mean it's it's such a great question and it works so 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 fantastic so i mean sanjo what i really admire about you is your story because you um were not trained in a classical way you yeah you did it all by falling down getting up again and getting better and better and better and better again so take take us back again how young were you? Where you stumbled into your first sales job, uh, and why was that? Well, I it was nineteen eighty-seven, and eighty-seven, eighty-seven, and I was eighteen. And in those days, I don't know if you remember from the story, I was a very quiet, shy, yep. fast-talking introvert. And my first ever sales job, in fact, was working in a men's clothes work, clothes shop selling suits. That was my first ever sales job. And I was terrible. Okay. Do you want to hear more? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I want to know why, why were you terrible? Well, I was terrible because I was shy and very quiet and introvert. And I, I didn't want mm -hmm. to approach people and talk to people. I only took that job because I left school with nothing, with no O-levels, mm -hmm. no qualifications. And on top of that, I was quite an introvert. So the only kind of work or industry that would employ you at that time really is sales, if you are in that kind of state. So I wasn't very good. And then I got fired, in fact, after six months. Okay. And then I went into another role where... But why, why were you fired? Because you were shy and introvert? And then they, 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 they linked it that, yeah, because you're shy and introverted... You, you don't reach out to people? You don't sell enough? or why I was totally that? deserved to be fired, frankly, because people, okay. when people walked in the shop, I wouldn't find every way to avoid them. Okay. <laughs> and that's not the right way. 
No. So, you know, I, I wasn't at that time ready for this. And then to cut a long story short, I went into other roles and I would always admire the, the good salespeople. And I would always ask them, you know, what is it about you that I can replicate and do? But they would give me advice that wasn't very specific. It was always about be positive and make it happen and all that mm -hmm. stuff, which is all very good if you know the basics. Mm -hmm. So then I started to write down in a pad what worked and what didn't work, absolute specifics. So I would write down if a certain way of speaking or a certain question worked. And I would always also write down what didn't work. And this group of notes in a pad grew and grew for the next year or so. And then one weekend when I decided to review everything, that's when I had my sort of eureka moment and I came up with the five rules and I totally changed and I started applying those and the rest is history. Wow. It's amazing. So the, the, the but it also means that uh, we're going to go a little deeper here is, uh, I mean, there was also another possibility. You were shy and introvert and, um, you could play the victim role, meaning, uh, like Calimero, I mean, yeah, I'm shy and introvert. So this means I cannot be a great sales guy. I mean, that's also an, an, a possibility. I mean, was it because you felt pain because you had to earn money or something that you really had to go over that uh, self-limiting belief? Or how did you cope with that? Of, well, where do you saw that? Was there some kind of inspirational sales guy who was also an introvert that inspired you saying, mm, he's also a, an introvert. It doesn't have to be all that extrovert shouting sales guy thing. Well, what happened was, first of all, I was in sales because at the time I had no other choice. Okay. And I didn't like everything I knew about sales people in mm. sales at that time. Because the people I knew at school and in my younger days, the ones who talked a lot and were very good at, um, frankly, bullshitting and uh, convincing people with, with lies. These were the people who became salespeople, in my opinion, at the time. And I felt that sales was about talking a lot and trying to pressure people into mm -hmm. buying things they don't need. And in fact, there was no one really who inspired me apart from my notes and from one notes, what I understood was, in fact, leveraging introvertism, as it were, and learning to listen and ask lots of questions and let the other person do all the talking. That is the key to great success in sales. And I do think that's one big problem with sales, even up till today, where people tend to think Selling is still all about talking and being extrovert. And in fact, it's the introverts, it's the techies, and it's the consultative people who make the best salespeople. But I still think out there in the world today, sales is somewhat of a black magic art, which no one really truly understands. And they just hire people who seem personable and outgoing. And uh, it's so much more to it than that. And personally, when I hire people, I look for people who are quiet and listen a lot and ask questions, not the people who pitch and pitch and push, which is what most salespeople tend to do in my experience. That's uh, in, in the team that I drop solid. The, they're all top sellers because the other ones, yeah, they are gone. And they have one thing in common. They're all introverts. 
all of them. They're nice, very introverted people. So they're they're not going to jump on a table and start shouting. They're really nice, introverted people. At the same time, they ask questions and they also set their boundaries so they know how to do it. So it, they don't let uh, their introversy... It doesn't mean because you're introvert that you are... Um, how do you say that? That they... Um, are not happy with themselves or, or or that they don't stand there they really stand there so this has nothing to do with it it's just that they yeah yeah it's not like they're producing like you just said lots of lots of words and shouting all the time and i i don't know where it comes because we have now a, an intern is like 20 and also him because then we did some kind of role playing um also him his perception even he's studying marketing or some marketing sales thing in school. Uh, and uh, and even he, when he came, is that during this role-playing, he asked two questions and immediately start pitching. And drops all the blah, 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 blah. And, I, I'm not, and we were like, what, what are you doing? And I don't know, even today, and still in the younger generation, where they are getting this kind of uh, perception. I know some of it comes from movies like uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, because, I mean, I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's, it's pitching all the time. Eh? It's really pitching. Eh? It's that kind of sales that we think is sales, but it's not sales. So I don't know. Um, now, back to the recruiting part. Tell me more about that. So when you are meeting somebody, how, how, how do you do that? Do you look on their CV? Do you look at their personality? Do you look at their mindset? How do you, how do you recruit a great sales um, man or woman? How do you do that, Sanjoy? Because I'm very interested in that. Okay, so when it comes to CVs, yeah. it's very difficult to tell. But mm. one thing I don't do, which a lot of, in fact, nearly all recruiters always do, is mm. they're always looking for one to have had the exact experience having done the job before in your previous few roles, or at least mm -hmm. one role. So that's not important to me. When it comes to recruitment, there are two qualities I look for. They are passion and intelligence. Okay. I mean, there was a time where I was only looking for passion. Then I recruited very enthusiastic idiots, and that doesn't really work either. So <laughs> you've got to have passion and intelligence. And then in, in an interview, it's really about how that person takes control of the interview and wants to understand from me what needs to happen in the interview, what my criteria are as the hiring manager and what they need to do, say and demonstrate in order to get through to the next stage. Because how a person tends to handle the interview is how they will handle your clients or mm -hmm. my clients if they're working for me. And if they are, are pitching a lot at the interview, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're bad choices either because in a lot of cases very good potential salespeople are pitching because that's the way they've been taught that's all they know so if you do find someone does seem like a good fit but they do pitch a lot you shouldn't cross them out what you should do is you should tell them and ask them that we're going to train you a different way of selling Yep. Give them open, frank, honest feedback, which is the way you're currently selling yourself to me is through talking a lot and pitching. However, if you were to get the role here, you'd have to do it the opposite way. You'll, you'll receive the training and the guidance and support to do that. Now, what do you think about that? And are you willing to go through that process and that change? And often there, if you can get the commitment from people, 
and you as the hiring person can really see that and that they're really going to do that, that they will do that change. That's what matters. No. Yeah, that I, I like. Uh, I call that the coachability. It's kind of a scale to one uh, from zero to ten. I want to find out how coachable are these people. So this means that um, are they open for self-reflection and are they open to change the way they look at things, so their mindset, um, and adopt new things. I mean, one of your rules is um, where you have to get rid of all the maybes and all the filler words. Eh? And um, yeah, because one of the sales was feeling sometimes a little insecure because he's meeting somebody new and he was like filling, yeah, also combination with introversy. He's, he's filling up the conversation with all these filler words. And I'm like, no, 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 statement of delivery, trim it down. The big Sanjo said, trim it down and make it, yeah, but I, maybe people will think I'm not so intelligent because I don't use these fancy words. Screw them. Just use it simple, plain words and skip all the the bullshit words and the maybes and the, and all those filler words. No, you don't have to do that. Just keep it simple and don't repeat your sentences. Sentences. You I, sometimes you have to do to underphrase to 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 really make a statement. But he was like repeating the same sentence over and over again, which of course misses the the point of of the delivery of the statement. So um, that's it. so for me the, the coachability is yeah one of the biggest things that I look for. Now another point: um, you're managing a team, leading a team. Do you also introduce during the hiring process? Are you going to um, let one of your people or multiple of your team members also speak with that new candidate? Because I do to see if if I missed something, if there's a kind of a cultural fit. In the team, because I think also that's for me a very critical success factor. I totally agree. So I always would and always have had one of my team members interview the person as well. However, I pick the team member who really is demonstrating the, the right skills yeah, of and course. the right approach. And I get them to talk to the person and get the views. And this is a win-win in two ways. It's a win-win in terms of are you able to select this person or not and get a second view? But also, it's a really good way of inspiring loyalty in the person, your team member, who you've asked to do the interview. And they feel that they're really working in a proper meritocracy that's level and that you're not trying to be above them and think, you know, you're beneath me to hire. And another strategy on this particular area, I find, is getting the person to do the second interview if they're a new person. If they're a new person and they've got all the potential and they're showing signs, get them to do the interview for the next person. And that also makes them feel much more secure and grounded in the new role and important. And in a way, puts them under a bit of pressure to make sure that they do end up themselves doing all the communication skills and sales skills and the rules as time goes yeah, okay. on. Okay, cool. Um, now, for the for the training part of of your teams, do you um, do you also use role playing in order to um, make sure that because one of the things that I remember from you is when you stopped giving uh, on a kind of a training basis um, your your training of yeah a couple of days um, 
because I, I saw it a couple of times. I saw it um, in, um, in, a, in an hour or two hours. I saw it. I saw it spreading over a couple of days. Is the fact that you were also a little frustrated that when you would meet one of those sellers afterwards, that they did not do anything with it. So, so you, with your five principles, because it's a shame because they're gold. They're really, I mean, the, 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 uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood. It was from Socrates, I believe, um, or some Greek god or some Greek philosopher. I don't know. And um, is is it is it for you? Do, do you do you do you train them um, your teams applying with with uh, role playing with the same principles or do you differently to make sure that they really that they not only grasp it mentally but they are really applying it? Okay, so role playing yes is a very important component, but it's still mm -hmm. not enough. And mm -hmm. in fact, the best classroom training, be it one day or five days with role playing, at the end of it, the best result you can hope to achieve is people know that you, the trainer, know what you're talking about mm -hmm. and that they agree with all the principles and they would love the support to put them into action. No one ever comes out of a training and then goes into reality and actually does it because the learning happens when, in the actually doing. So mm -hmm. it's in the coaching follow-up where mm -hmm. people will learn and you, the trainer coach, have to start embedding and making them use all they've learned but no one ever really comes out of a training and knows what to do regardless of how much they liked it and how much they took in because it's human nature just to carry on as you were before however much you like something else and there's something else i've found over the years which is and this applies to introverts also which is some the biggest fear people tend to have in sales and they do everything to avoid it mm. is asking questions And if you can, if a person who doesn't like doing sales or is scared of sales, they will do everything to avoid asking questions. The only question they like asking is at the end of their pitch, a quick, closed, silly question, is it of interest to you? However, you get that person to say, change their mindset and become someone who asks questions instead. You know, what, where, how, which, etc. They find it terrifying. So that's the area you really need to coach people, give them the confidence to ask questions and shut up and listen. And often the reason for the fear is they're, they're scared that they may not understand the answer. And I think that can also be supported and changed with discussions about what the answers could be and where to take the conversation from there. And... What, what does it mean for for the extrovert people? Do you also have an opinion or um, some experience? I'd say with, whether it's extrovert or introvert, both types tend to be scared of asking questions. Yeah, I also thought that, yeah. Absolutely. But, it's not just introverts. Both do. And often with the extroverts, I find it the, the ones who are very boastful about how great they are. Mm. And when it comes down to asking, asking a question, they turn into a mouse. I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't, but I have in many, many experiences changed people like that. And mm. once you make them have a win, and that first time we, they're asking questions, you have to do force them a little. But once they start experiencing success and a win, then they start changing and evolving. So this means, to make it very pragmatic, 
there is a kind of a meeting or a call, whatever, especially these days is more like a video call. Um, you join them, you let them do the meeting and you shut up. And afterwards, you're going to ask them how did it went, what you thought about uh, the meeting and so on and so on. And then you're going to coach them. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And um, if something would go wrong during the meeting, do you interrupt? Do you intervene or do you just let it be? No, I would say unless it's an absolute disaster, which means that if you don't interrupt, everything falls apart and your objective for the meeting is not met and there's a financial consequence to it. Therefore, very, in a very extreme circumstance, do not interrupt. Because if you interrupt, you humiliate the person you're going to coach so much that their backs will go up and they're not going to listen to you afterwards. Yeah, that's also what I thought. Now, um, do you see a difference between doing sales today and like... 10, 20 years ago in terms of doing sales with customers, interactions. Also, that's another question, eh? how salespeople behave, the younger sales compared to like, I would say sales like 10 or, or 20 years ago uh, who were young. Everybody's still young. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, unfortunately, in the last 20 years or so, at least mm-hmm. last 20 years, mm-hmm. Traditional selling has received such a bad rep and the traditional good parts of selling. And 99% of salespeople do everything to avoid any actual contact with the customer. And they rely on social media and email alone to do their prospecting and to do their sales. And, you know, 25 years ago, there was no email. So I think people were, you know, forced into a corner of having to do it right. So I think what's different is, is nowadays the amount, the sheer volume of articles you see on LinkedIn saying cold calling is dead, cold calling is dead, is absurd. And I, I understand their reason for doing these articles. And it's not actually because they think cold calling is dead. They're looking at what fear can we capitalize on to get the most clicks and the most attention coming our way. Mm-hmm. One thing they can guarantee is absolutely everyone is scared of cold calling. And if someone is scared of cold calling and they see lots of articles and training saying cold calling is dead, they're going to love that and it will reinforce their belief. So I think social media is quite a, a very big disrupting factor. Mm-hmm. However, it doesn't take away the fact that cold calling does work and will always work. Mm-hmm. And is it then really cold calling as such, or is it combined with marketing initiatives or something? That's a very good point you raised there. So I was in a role around 10 years ago where my team was doing lead generation and marketing wanted to work very closely with me on mm-hmm. campaigns. And we had, each of my reps had, uh, you know, a hundred accounts each that they managed. Now it's important when working with marketing, and if you're coming from a sales perspective, that you don't simply just take what they give you and use it. You are, you are the expert on sales. They're the expert in marketing. It's about putting it together and coming up with the right approach. Now, what the, a big mistake would be is if you're a salesperson and you've got 100 accounts and you've got great relationships with 50 C-levels and various other people in the organization, that you suddenly call them up with a script prepared by marketing about whether there are certain product lines of interest. 
So the way I set it up in those days, and it worked very well, was I told marketing, please give me your all of the offers you want us to promote. However, do not give me an approach. Give me an objective and a result that we need to have. And we will then do it our way. Now, our way was that my guys and girls, my people, would phone CIOs and phone their senior contacts in organization and continually want to understand what they're doing here, what they're doing there, etc. And what they would do, if you've got a certain offer which resolves certain business issues and allows a customer to do X, Y, and Z, they will contact someone they have a relationship with and say, how are you currently doing this? Mm-hmm. Where, what are you doing in this area? And then if that person asks, why are you asking? Just say, I've got, we've got an offer at the moment. I just want to find out if it's relevant. And then you start asking questions about how they're doing certain things. But at the end of that, you can say, okay, look, from what you've said, this offer is relevant. Let me tell you about it and tell you why. And then you get into it. But you may say at the end of it, this offer, in fact, is not relevant. And I'm glad we spoke. Now, now this point about relevance, it makes me arrive at an epiphany, frankly, that I had only in the last year or two which is there is only one value pitch in the world for selling anything. There's not many, there's one. And if it's truly a value pitch, that value pitch is that you must seek the relevance of your product with any prospect. You must seek the relevance, see if it's relevant. It's not about talking to every prospect, convincing them that you've got the best product, because you can never know unless you understand their environment. So the only only sort of value pitch there is, is let's have a, we specialize in X, Y, and Z. I want to have a conversation with you to understand what you're doing in these areas to see if what we're doing is in any way relevant and can help and or enable you to achieve those objectives. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, uh, that's something that's always been there, but I haven't really articulated it that well, but I, I arrived at that. Because I would always see, again, LinkedIn helps me a lot. I would always see on LinkedIn, you know, this is a good value pitch. That is a good value pitch. And I've, I've worked out that seeking relevance is what matters. And yeah. I also worked out that when people contact me um, when I'm in a senior position in a company and they contact me with a cold email, and the cold email is, I would like to take half an hour of your time to present mm-hmm. our product to show you how it can really help you. Mm-hmm. I used to find those emails extremely annoying. Mm-hmm. Because it showed a huge level of arrogance and ignorance. Mm -hmm. Because how do they know what they've got can help me? And if I do accept that call, even if I'm slightly interested, I know I'm going into a call with someone who has one objective, to sell me this product. Mm -hmm. Not to to tell me if it's right for me or not. Now, the way that person should have pitched is, Dear Sanjoy, we specialize in X, Y, and Z. I'd love to take an hour of your time to understand how you're doing X, Y, and Z, one, two, and three, to see if what we have is in any way relevant. Now, can you feel the difference there, Peter, how that takes the pressure totally off the cold email and doesn't make you feel like that if I have this conversation, I'm automatically committing myself to buying something. Yeah. All you're committing yourself to do is get into a conversation where you can establish if what the seller is selling is relevant. But that's for me... That's one of the insights that I learned is that for me, the key, what you're saying. So, of course, I fully agree with the relevance. I fully agree. And um, 
I mean, the first male you just described, it gives me like, you actually don't care about me as a human being. You just care about how can I take money out of my pocket to, 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 to push your product into my throat. And the thing is, is that uh, with prospecting or, or selling is, it's like, I mean, when you go on a date, normally you don't marry at the end of the evening with the, 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 the woman or the man. You, you went on a date. If you want to have, um, how do you call that, an, an, a starting relationship, you, the, the, I wouldn't say the trick, but the key for me is to, to um, lower the commitments as low as possible to keep it open, keep the air open so that the other person does not feel pressured so that he or she can emotionally take the decision to be with you. And for me, it's the same thing. If you keep, if you go away from that customer uh, or prospect um, um, supplier thing and keep it really open, then, and then the, 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 per, the other person will open immediately or immediately will open him or herself to go into a dialogue. Otherwise, he or she will, will put up a guard and play that, that title, that C-level, that CIO or whatever, because he or she is feeling, yeah, it's not about me. It's, it's, it's you. What's in it for you? That's what you are, that's what you are um, vibing or radiating. So I 100% agree. And, um, and, and that's that tone of voice, because I, I receive those emails and those invites via LinkedIn all the time. Uh, people shuffling their uh, product. So no, it doesn't work. If somebody is cold calling you and they, they're speaking with you on the phone and they're doing it not good, are you going, are you going to give them advice? Yeah, in some cases I do. Me too. So I asked them, eh? I said, um, thanks for the call. Are you open for some advice? And I will tell them this, this, this. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the calls that I find the most amusing, which is basically all of them, is when they come through to me, they first of all don't even check if it's a good time to talk. And then they launch into a pitch that possibly lasts more than a minute, sometimes yeah. two or three minutes. And the funniest thing, because I live in Germany and unfortunately I don't speak German, when German cold callers call me and speak for uh, two, three minutes in continuous German and then finish off with the German phrase of something to do with interessant. I pause and I say to them calmly, sorry, I don't speak German. <laughs> and then I, then I say to them, wouldn't it have been good to know that at the beginning of the call? And then I say, let me give you some feedback. Get some interaction and commitment from people for the time you're going to take and what you're going to talk about before you go into it. Because this was nothing more than a pitch and a waste of time where you could have been talking to someone who does understand. You, you mentioned, um, I've worked with also, uh, and that's, that's another question for, for later, um, about internalizing or externalizing cold calling. Eh? Uh, at Sentia, we externalize it, and um, sometimes with great success, sometimes with not so great success. Um, and I had lots of discussions with a lot of people about if you're cold calling, should you ask, is it the right time to speak, sir? I mean, some people don't because they're like, you pick up the phone eh? and other people are going to ask that question. Your take is you should ask for if it's a good uh, time to talk right now. Yeah, it certainly is. 
There's many ways of doing it. If you call someone and say, um, am I disturbing you? Can I take a few moments of your time? It's not going to work because you don't sound on their level. And also the language you're using and the tone you're using sounds like I'm going to do a sales pitch and I'm quite ashamed about it. Do you have a moment? Though that's not what you're trying to do, your tone and your words give that impression. So it's critical that when you do call someone, you first of all, you know their job title. Obviously, you know their name. Yeah. And you get through and you say who you are, where you're calling from, confirm their name and job title, and then ask them straight. And statement delivery is critical here. Is this a good time to talk? Which has a vastly different impact from, um, do you have a few minutes? Can I take a few moments of your time? So when I would call, call, I would say, hello, Mr. Ray. My name is Sanjoy, Sanjoy Bosch, and I'm calling from ACES headquarters here in Johannesburg. Now, I understand, Mike, that you are the CIO for South African Airways. Is that right? Yes. Excellent. Mike, is this a good time to talk? Now, that intro blows people away. And if nothing else, they'll think, who is this person or what do they want? Let me just find out quickly before I tell them to get lost. And they'll say, well, what is this about? Which is a totally an invitation for you to do your short, valued introduction. But it is an important piece. And people who launch into things without asking that have no respect for your time. And also have no confidence in what they're selling because they're quite sure as soon as they say, my name is and I'm calling from, you definitely won't be interested. So because you won't be interested, let me just force my pitch down your throat, hoping that you will. Mm -hmm. Another one that you combined with statement of delivery is, is, is one of the most critical um, insights next to the seek first to understand and then to be understood. And this is something that I worked on for years. It's pausing. The power of a pause, the power of silence. Are you using it now or are you asking a question? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, 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 it's also an invitation to, to reply, of course, but also in meetings. And it's, it's, it's again a fear thing, eh? because a lot of people are afraid of the silence. So they have to fill up the gap with words, but nothing is so challenging being in a meeting, delivering a statement and then shut up. And wait, <laughs> That's right. who is going to talk first? Well, pausing, it's important, of course, to pause and be silent after you've asked a question. But it's as important to be pausing while you're questioning. So while I'm speaking to you, as you can see, every few words, there is a pause. But I'm not saying every few words, um, basically, Peter, you know, um, what I actually tell people to do is, um, you know, pause and um, uh, ask a question and um, basically see if um, afterwards, if you shut up. Can you see how that puts you into a coma if someone talks yeah. like that? Yeah. It's about yeah. pausing while you're speaking as well. And another very important factor is we all, you, I, every person you train, there are times in your life you naturally use all the communication skills and you do speak well, though you've not had the training. So all the communication skills and the five rules really do is they allow you to do an impersonation 
of your best, most effectively, brilliantly communicating self, which is only normally there when you're feeling fired up or comfortable. However, you can use it in a difficult situation where naturally you're not inclined to speak like that. And then all you're doing, using those rules, is doing an impression of your best self, which is already there. So you're not asking anyone when they're using these rules to be Sanjoy or to be Peter or to be something they're not. You're simply mm-hmm. asking them to do an impression of their best self. Mm. I mean, for you, it's becoming so second nature, these rules. Are you still between brackets training or increasing your consciousness about those rules every day? I find none of those rules actually are second nature for me. None of them. And I have to consciously apply them in every situation. However, I am flattered by what you say because when when I am putting them into action, they seem so natural. You would think it's second nature. And that is the power of the rules. If you do them right, no one will think you're trying something new. It'll seem like it always is. I'm human like everyone else. And often in these situations, and the older I get, the more full of apparent wisdom I think I have. The more I think, especially when speaking to young people, that I could just get to the point and lecture and talk. And I have to check myself. I have to slow down. Everything I'm doing on this call, Peter, is totally calculated and checked. It's not second nature. So that's a really comforting thing, in fact, to explain to people um, when you're you're training. Because they're thinking, look, it's easy for you. You've got it down as second nature. And we can tell them, no, this, in fact, is not second nature. I'm having to concentrate on every word I say right now and how I'm speaking and all the elements I've told you about. However, does it sound like this is forced? And, of course, people say, no, it's not. I said, you now, I'm going to give you all the components to do the similar thing. You have do you have children? Eh? I certainly do. Three of them. Three. Do you also have already uh, learned these 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 principles? I mean, not in selling, but more in in types of con- conversations and connecting with people. Have I learned that, or have I? No, no. If you, have, you, have you trained them? That's my question. I do train them a lot on this, and they unfortunately have the this is this is dad talking, so it can't be real. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem but I hope as time goes on and they get into work they'll begin to realize that it's not just father talk but it's true I have to tell them I said this stuff that you're getting free and every day people pay thousands for this and you guys just take it for granted and you don't even bother <laughs> but that's kids so my oldest son is going to be 23 this year or tw- sorry 22 Okay. And my daughter is 19, and my youngest is 10 years old. But the reason I, in fact, live in Germany is I wanted to come back and spend more time with them mm-hmm. because, I, you know, I train people who I'm not related to, who don't, you know, I like you a lot, Peter, I trained you, but you're not my kid. <laughs> and I thought when I, I should come back to Germany and look after my three most important trainees who are also my three most difficult trainees, my children. And that's why I base myself here and do everything from here. Yeah, that's normal. Eh? I mean, I have a son right now of almost four years, so uh, young. So, um, I mean, I, I'm, 
like um, I understand that completely. Now, um, <laughs> internalize or externalize cold calling? You mean, I mean, there are a lot of companies right now who offer you cold calling services. So you create together with them a kind of a script or they do it themselves and they um, are going to target um, a certain group. Together with them, you create that kind of list. And then they start calling. And sometimes they charge a fee by the hour. So how many hours did we call? Other companies, they charge a fee per visit that they have booked for you. What's, what's your experience in terms of strategy? Okay, so I would never pay an agency for how many hours they're on a call. I would pay, pay them on results. Mm, makes sense. So if I'm expecting 20 leads, I will pay you per lead. And it's critical that you tell an agency what the criteria for a lead is, not just a lead. Mm. Because agencies tend to give out. I spoke to John Smith, who's the cleaner. He said they'd be interested in hearing more. That's the end of it. So you, the client, must set the, the ground rules for what is a lead that you must have spoken to these levels. You must have found out this, this, and this. You've got the appointment, and they're all going to attend. And you pay them at the end of the meeting actually taking place. Now, going back to a more fundamental basic point you've just raised, that is, if you think about what's been happening the last two, three years, I'd be surprised with companies that are not internalizing cold calling and managing their clients by phone and selecting people who are good in the phone. Because mm -hmm. in the last two years with COVID going on, there's no field sales going on. You're not going to go out and see people. The future is the phone. Massively. And the companies who have been using the phone and online selling are the ones who are keeping their head up. Any company that totally relies on the field sales situation will not make it. They have to do the phone. So I would say that firstly, give priority when you're hiring people to salespeople who are on the phone, not field salespeople. Field salespeople and field selling is dead and is dying. It's been dying long before COVID because you can achieve a hell of a lot on the phone. The only time you should see a customer is when you absolutely have to. When I say a customer, I mean a prospect. So when yeah. it comes to the signing, etc. But you do your absolute best to optimize doing as much as you can over the phone and then do the meetings in a minimal amount. Now, a very good field salesperson rarely makes a good cold caller. A very good cold caller nearly always makes a very good field salesperson. Okay. Because phoning is a lot harder than face-to-face -face selling. Yes. So if you can do brilliant C-level consultative they are phoning, selling on the phone, you can evolve into field sales, which is easier. But so many field salespeople are terrible on the phone and terrified of the phone. And the reason we live in a world where telesales people and inside sales people are paid less is because of the cost of sale. And you have to ultimately sometimes meet people to close. But it is a irony that the hardest sales job is the least paid. Yeah, that's also something I don't understand. If you look at um, a typical SaaS company, eh, software as a service, they they have like this um, triple sales strategy. So they have like the person who's going to call and get the lead in, the least paid. Then they give it to somebody who's going to close the deal. So from the yeah, how do you say that? From the conversation to the or the qualification 
to the to, to the to, to the close, and then they give it to some kind of customer satisfaction manager who, because it's an, a monthly or yearly model, so they have to make sure that the customer is happy and so on, and she or he is also responsible for upsells. Um, and I also. I, I don't understand why the field sales is uh, regarded higher and people are looking down. At least that's what my perception is uh, to to the the people actually who are doing the calls. That's right. And the people doing the calls are doing the hardest part of the whole thing. They're doing 90%. The closer and the aftermarket is 5% each. Now, that is if you are doing the front-end part right. Now, if you're doing it like 99% of the inside salespeople today, and your idea of a lead is, I had a chat with John, and he's interested in hearing more about your product, then, unfortunately, you deserve to be paid what you are, frankly, even less. Mm-hmm. But if you are doing it right, you should be doing 90% of the whole sales closure by thoroughly speaking to the CIO, the financial director, the influencer, getting tons of information for each one. You know the budgets, the criterias, and the competition. You know the timescales, and you have the commitment for a meeting with all the, all the decision makers in one place. All the field salesperson has to do is go in and present based on information you've gathered and close it. No, that's, that's the way right. it should work, and that front-end inside salesperson doing it, like I just said, is very highly skilled and should be well-paid. Yeah, because he or she is also responsible for creating that relationship because you can transfer a number or an email address, but you can never transfer a relationship. No, I mean, I can say transferring a relationship you can do, but it has to be done methodically and with a structure. But it's not easy because the person who you transfer the relationship to within your company to do the relationship with the customer won't have the same level of trust and respect that you have had. However, if that person carries on using the same rules, they will. will. And it's also important that people, customers, ultimately equate your sales approach, not to you as a person, never. They, They equate it to your company and your brand and what it stands for. So if you're everyone in your organization is working consultatively and helpfully, you will realize that that's just the way it is working with that company. I've got to admit, Amazon's customer service on the retail side is outstanding. And my perception is never is because I spoke to a certain person. It always is. They always treat you however small a thing you've ordered from the retail side. And if you've got any issue with delivery or not having got it, they treat you like you are the most important situation there is and they have to fix it and they're extremely helpful. So what that impression it's given me is Amazon are like that. I'm not sitting here thinking Amazon are like this, but that person is like that. It's all one. So if you as a company have a brand and all of you are doing it right, the company is easier to transfer relationships because you're assured of yeah. the same yeah. quality approach and service. Yeah. Then it all comes down to culture, and culture is values. What are the values of the company? Because you're talking about Amazon, the retail side, but can I also confirm you that the um, Amazon Web Services, so the the cloud um, part of it, is just the same. And I asked them because I worked with them during Sentia, and and they said we have like um, extreme customer obsession, what they call, and this means that they have like 
a total impact of a kind of a budget. Um, so they have a lot of room to experiment to make sure the customer is happy. For example, when um, a customer is trying some kind of their, their Amazon Web Services platform and it's free for a couple of weeks, but they need to fill out an, a Visa card. But uh, after a couple of weeks, the Visa card starts, no, Amazon starts charging the Visa card. And um, sometimes it happens that a, a prospect saying, look, look, I didn't, it was never my intention to buy it. It was just for playing around and to trying. And other companies would say, you're too late. We charged it. Bye-bye. But they don't. They give it back the money. And they're like, no, we're going to for, for really long term. And it's something which is really embedded in their culture. Absolutely. And what you just said to me now, which when other companies do that, I find that a horrific and shocking behavior because they think that by telling a person who didn't want to buy it, sorry, it's already been charged. They've now lost that person forever and have come across as a money grabbing company with no integrity. So integrity, by the way, is another crucial element of what I look for in a person when I hire them. Mm. Passion, intelligence and integrity, truthfulness and honesty. And your brand should also represent those things. Yeah, at DropSolid, that's um, Dominique, Steven, especially both of them, the founders, they, they, they built a company around these values and they go very far. So even so far, if they would, by example, get an... Um, and and I, I remember my 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 the, the last day the last day the day that I signed the contract and they were talking about targets, and um, and I remember that Dominic said, "Look, if it's going to be nine million, but I want to make sure that our values are not being broken." So he would not agree to get nine million euros in if we would manipulate customers. Then he would be rather choose the seven million euro target, and and have. And, and I've done it in a trusty, uh, good way. And it takes balls to think like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the same time, I would say they should stick to the 9 million target, for example, mm -hmm. and make sure that you don't suffer from big case-itis. So the only reason a salesperson would struggle to hit their number is if they're mm -hmm. relying on one or two big deals. Yeah, and the problem course. with 99% of salespeople is they don't work on pipeline. Now, if you, on a daily basis, are doing two things, building pipeline, closing pipeline, mm -hmm. then you will never run short of pipeline. But what yep. do most salespeople do? Only work existing pipeline and then try and get new pipeline last minute, end of quarter, only if they have to. Now, that leads to that person relying on one or two big deals, which in turn leads to that company only relying on one or two big deals. And in those situations, what Dominique said is totally appropriate, which is you don't want to force these guys because you're relying on their deal through manipulation, etc. But that's not because that, you know, the number was too high. It's because you didn't work on pipeline. Yeah. Now, if you no, work three times pipe, four times pipe, you always hit target. Yeah. If your pipe is not full of BS. That's right. So qualifying pipe is important. Another thing people do is time scaling in pipelines. It's awful out there because if you're a sales director and you're doing your review and a forecast and something is forecast to close this quarter and it doesn't close and then the salesperson says, oh, it'll close next quarter. No. 
this is the worst thing in the world. And that's what happens to most deals. And that's because the time scale from the beginning was not qualified correctly. Yep. So when you're qualifying time scales, you should not ask a customer, customer, when do you want to buy this? That is not a time scale. It's about what, what is the absolute latest date by which this has to be implemented. We're talking the date by which afterwards there's no point implementing it. But it's, a, it's, again, it's again your question from the beginning eh, that I mentioned. What is the impact if this will not be implemented by Q1 or what, what will happen in the business? If yeah. you know that, then you know the timing. You have to find out what will be the impact on his job, on his situation, on whatever uh, things. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I've had situations where I've spoken to a prospect and they said, I, I want to buy this by June next year. I say, excellent. Mm. And by what date does it have to be implemented? Last worst case, we're talking the day after which it wouldn't make sense. Oh, that would be December next year. Now, I wouldn't then punish the customer or tell them off. I would simply say, okay, thank you. And when I'm writing up my opportunity and putting the time scale into my CRM, I'll put December. Yep. That's the real time scale. Now, this would mean you're not going to get slippage. Opportunities which are out 10 to December next year, when they've said June, your job as a salesperson is to keep in touch with that prospect, qualify it further, make them more comfortable, and bring it forward towards you over time. But slipping out opportunities based on badly qualified time scales is not good for the salesperson or the business. Mm, that's true. One of the things you mentioned that I see a lot of people struggling with is qualification. And they think it's done via the direct um, questions about budget, money and things like that and, uh, and time and who is the sponsor and who is the decision maker. Um, but it, I also think qualification and it's really related to all the five principle you you've mentioned and you are teaching it's not that these questions are bad or good but it's how you ask those questions again if you ask those questions in a sense like um just tell me when are you going to buy it and who is decision this always making decision of this I mean, again, you're giving them the, 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 the sentiment of, uh, I don't care about you. I just want the money. I want the deal uh, for the rest. But if you go with really into a kind of trusty, relating, communicating way, then a, that person will, uh, will be open because he or she is feeling that you, that you really want to help that person um, getting that deadline or whatever, implementing that product or whatever. So again, and second... A lot of people think, at least my opinion, that they only have to qualify once. Yeah. But yeah. for me, you have to qualify in every stage all of the time. But don't do it very hard and direct, of course, eh? because it's make you, it makes you, yeah, uh, looks like a very salesy person, of course, because they know you're selling and they know you have a target and they know you have pipelines and they know that they maybe can ask a discount. So what do you, what is, what's your take on that, on the qualification? Yeah, I part? do think you should be qualifying all the time. And if you think about qualifying, what does it mean? It means you're wanting to understand and get information all the time. Mm. Now, there's another approach to qualifying, which is important, which takes the pressure off a customer and will, never, will stop them feeling like you're doing this for your target, which is the moment they have expressed an interest, especially with inbound leads. This is what you need to do with inbound leads. 
is anything inbound where they want to buy something for you, you should never go into the qualification of when do you want it, etc. Even in inbound leads, you must want to engage in a conversation and risk losing the sale. Risk, yep. risk advising them not to buy your product by saying, hello, John, I see that you're interested in this product. I'd like to have a conversation to see what you're trying to do with it, what you're trying to resolve with a view to seeing if really this would be a good idea or not. Uh, last question, because I see, I see that's almost, uh, is it, we're reaching an hour because you, now you've triggered me with something. You talk about risking. Can you, is it also okay for you if, uh, and it's a trick question, of course, uh, if a, if a, if a salesperson says, no, we're not going to work together. I don't think there's a fit because a lot of totally, salespeople, you know, I, I, do I, I, I don't have the guts to do that. You have to do that. You must do that. Because you are recommending a product to ultimately, or you should be, to resolve a situation, to resolve a problem, to make something easier, to make something better, to save them money here or make them money there. Now, if you find through your consult that your product doesn't do that, you must have integrity and say, this will not achieve what you're looking to do. However, this combination of products will or we don't have anything, I recommend this company. Now, there are competition, but if you use that, that will get you there. Now, that person, you now have a customer for life. You've accelerated the motion towards trusted advisor, and you will get much bigger deals in future from that person. But you must do that. You, that yeah. must make second nature. Integrity yeah. is fundamental and is everything. Now, final closing question, Sanjoy. You mentioned you have uh, children, uh, one 10, one uh, 19, and the other one 23. If the Sanjo of today, Sanjoy of today would meet Sanjoy when he was 18 and you're meeting him, what kind of advice, beside the five rules, what would kind of advice, life advice would you give him? You're a lot better looking, a lot more confident, and a lot more cool and a lot more intelligent than you currently think you are. And you're going to waste many, many years not getting anywhere because you don't believe in those factors. Realize what you are now and make it happen. Wow. What a final statement. Thanks a lot, Sanjoy. It was great seeing you, hearing you and seeing with all the passion you still have not changed, maybe the hair a little bit in terms of color, but uh, yeah, I have no hair anymore. So, uh, <laughs> so I want to thank you and I wish you all the best, lots of success and um, yeah, speak to you next time. Eh? Peter, it's been a pleasure. Make it happen. Thanks. Eh? Bye-bye. Sanjoy. All right. Bye, Peter. Hey, it's Peter here. Thanks a lot for listening to What's On Your Mind. Looking forward to your opinions and comments. And don't forget to subscribe on psgrow.com and leave your email address to stay tuned for future episodes. Bye!